You're listening to the Scottish Football Forums podcast, the home of Scottish football banter. Hello and welcome to Season 9, Episode 1 of the Scottish Football Forums podcast. Um, I'm John, we don't have two Johns tonight, the other one's not here, but we do have Chris. Hello, uh, back for another season. Yeah, maybe this could be the first season without a Celtic title win. Nah, let's <laughs> hope not. But someone, <laughs> but, um, someone in red wins it. <laughs> um, but um, before we've got a special guest tonight, um, junior footballer um, Aaron Conley. Welcome board Aaron. Don't tell me he's gone already. Hi. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Did we scare you off uh, after that intro? <laughs> no, no. I think it, I think it was possible. My signal. No, thank, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah. Happy to be on. Yeah, not a problem. We're um, pleased to have you on. So um, I've read a good bit about you, and I understand you are still playing junior football with the Falters United. Have you just recently joined them? Yeah, just recently signed in the summer there. Um, after a couple of years at Urban Meadow. So I had a I had a two season spell at Urban Meadow but mostly spent on the sidelines unfortunately. I had an eleven month injury, um with some knee ligament damage. And then I spent six or seven weeks out with a torn groin as well. So I've had a frustrating couple of seasons, albeit I love my time down in Northern, you know, there's a great team camaraderie down there and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. But having been based in Edinburgh work wise, you know, and driving along the M it makes it logistically for me that I can go to full house on my way home from train on from work as opposed to you know driving 60 miles and then having to drive a further 30 or 40 to get to training so something a little bit different um a league I'm not particularly familiar with a lot of, a lot of clubs that I've, not, I've never really played against so the opportunity to travel to different places on a Saturday get to know different players I haven't spent so long in the west region so so a little, a little fire in my belly again um and I'm just excited to get started. Yeah, good stuff. Um, it must have been a difficult decision um, to make the move um, from playing in, again in the Ayrshire Juniors. So, although if John, the other John was on, he's an Auckland person, um, and he um, he's a no, he would have known that we saying you've been trying to get away from Auckland because they keep winning everything over there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, in fairness, I think uh, Offa Meadow obviously were. Are a massive, massive club, and you get that feel when you're down there. You know, there's just a sense of achievement all over the walls and stuff. And obviously, they've had the tough times recently. But you know, I was part of the squad that got promoted. Um, albeit I was injured and only played about five or six games at the early part of the season. Um, and in the early part of last season, as I came back from injury, you know, um, I scored the goal that got us our first league win after nine games. So Excellent. it was nice to play my part. Um, and a great club, a great bunch of boys, you know, to finish sixth in their first season back in the top league, having only picked up a point in their first eight games, just was a sort of remarkable achievement that Brian has done putting the squad together. Um, and it's it looks like mainly the same boys again this year, so I'd, I would expect they'll be strong and they'll go on and have a good season this year again. And what's the setup at Falthouse, Sam Link? Uh, really good, actually. I was pleasantly surprised. Um you know, the pitch was just relayed last summer and they've done further work on the pitch, so it looks great. There's, you know, a little enclosure and a little small seat stand. Um, they have the, 
the house as they call it, which is their bar and lounge area. Um, and the dressing room and the facilities were all great. You know, your, your training kits all washed for you and stuff like that. So I think that they're a club who are really aiming high, um, trying to create as professional a setup as they can for their players. Um, so I, I was I was pleasantly surprised, and I look forward to you know spending more time there and seeing somewhere different as well. You know, different as we play away games, it'll be somewhere different for me most weeks as I go and play. You know, I spent seven eight years in the the sort of top echelons of the West region, so it'll be it'll be nice to to go to different places and play against new faces. Good stuff, and um, I wish you all the best for that season. Um, Thank you. We're going to. Um, Although we're starting a new season, we might as well um, go back to the Women's World Cup because um, at the end of last season, Scotland um, had just lost to England when we recorded, um, but they were still had a chance of qualifying. They lost then to Japan, still had a chance of qualifying. But they had to win um, against Argentina. Um, we thought that they needed to win by quite a few goals. It was looking good after 70 minutes, um, 3-0 up in cruise control, and then... I don't even know where you start with the last 16 minutes of that game, so Chris, you can lead the way. Uh, we um, are old enough to remember the, the men's team being at the World Cup, um, and it became a joke of uh, how could Scotland blow it this time round. Um, but the men never managed anything quite like that. Uh, the, the, the 98 World Cup ended with us going out in a 3-0 defeat and it looked like it might actually be a reverse of that it might be the 3-0 win was going to take Scotland through to the last 16 um, and I, I don't know if if Shelley Kerr's team just I don't know if they collapsed or if they just took their eye off the ball or what but I mean the Argentinians were making substitutions as if it was like you know, we'll just try this and it worked <laughs> it's just the the concentration fell away and, and the, the belief disappeared and Argentina suddenly had the, the wind behind their back, got themselves back to 3-2 um, and then we had the most farcical ending we could possibly have had. Uh, <laughs> we'd already been done over a bit with VAR um, in the previous games. The, the handball in England game is technically a handball under the new rules. I dread to think how that's going to play out the rest of the season now. Um, the VR decisions that came in the Japan game were even more bizarre. Um, we had a couple of penalty claims that didn't go to VR for no apparent reason. Um, the the penalty that Japan got was incredibly soft. Um, so again, we, we came in, but I had those goals. Uh, things worked a bit differently in VR. I went in Scotland's favour in that game. Maybe they'd have been sitting in a better position and not needing to go chasing goals, but uh, even then we, we, we chased the goals, we got the goals we were 3-0 up <laughs> um, to then go back to 3-2 and you're thinking okay, if we can at least get the win we're still better off than Nigeria, we're still in a good position depending on what happens in the previous games, and then there's the most bizarre penalty decision um, which I think she got a touch in the ball to be honest um, I mean I it's, it's so that. it's so it's so typically Scottish, isn't it? You know, to be it's such a, a hard looking, glorious failure story. Um, but I think, you know, having having watched the game and stuff, it's just really unfortunate. I mean, if you're at three two, I'm still thinking that at that time so Scotland will see this out, and then obviously Shelley makes a couple of changes during the free kick uh, in the lead up to the to the penalty. Yeah, and 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 the second change doesn't even get you know usually the referee waits till you get into position to defend the set piece, 
in Scotland aren't even set for the set piece and it sort of breaks and there's a bit of bobbling going on and then Sophie obviously makes the challenge which I mean I think it probably is a penalty I thought my initial thoughts at the time were a penalty and then I was surprised it even went to VAR but and then you think Lee Lee Alexander saves it and you you have that elation again and you think oh we might get through and then you get the VAR decision again she's come off a line ever so slightly if anything I mean depending on what angle of picture you look at it part of her foot's on a line if you look at it from behind the goal it looks as if she's off a line and then she the referee books Lee Alexander for it so it's almost as if she's scared to dive for the second attempt of the penalty yeah. because I think it's just drilled down the middle and you know it's almost Lee, it looks as if Lee's not sure what to do because she doesn't want to get sent off um, yeah. but it's just, she it's was taken out of the game entirely when that happened there was, there was yeah. no way she was going to save that second penalty yeah I mean it was heartbreaking completely heartbreaking for the girls I can only imagine what they went through you know and I think we just have to try and focus on the positives that that's now two successive tournaments that the, the women's national team have qualified for yeah. and they can only learn by that I think if you look at the Euros in 2017 when England beat us I think it was 6-0 and this time round you know we lost 2-1 but for the the second half after after a disappointing first half the second half of the England game I thought Scotland were really good they had a 20 minute period or so, 20, 25 minute period or so where they probably dominated the game a little bit um, and would, they would have been frustrated that they didn't score earlier to maybe make more of a, more of a game of it. Um, and then Japan, who obviously finished, who played in World Cup finals in recent times, you know, Scotland again had a, had a difficult start to the game, but in the second half of the game, pulled themselves back into it. And as you say, there's a couple of penalty decisions that Scotland could have possibly had in that game to pick something up. So I think the progress in such a short period of time you know, made under Shelley and previous management. It can only be good for the girls, you know, you look at like Erin Cuthbert and the likes, they're all pretty young and to have su- to to have such experience under the belts already, you know, it can only be good going forward into next Euros campaign, hopefully. Yeah, yeah you, you, you point out how, how young some of them are, it was probably the most depressing thing was after that game against Argentina, I looked up how young Erin Cuthbert actually is and she was yeah. born after the 98 World Cup. <laughs> Yeah, she's that young. It's just like she she cannot possibly remember the the, the men's team being in a, a World Cup. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully uh, it won't be too much longer that we need to wait before that happens again. Um, but yeah, the, the 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 women's World Cup has been has been met with such um, great enthusiasm. I think it's just everything that how many of us were gutted that we went out um, against Argentina in the end, um, and then. Think- even when Scotland went out, I continued to watch the tournament. There's, yeah. there's some of the football was played was absolutely terrific. Even Scotland, the way we played when we were like 2-0 up and then 3-0 up, until that last sort of 15, 20 minutes of the game, we were playing some terrific stuff. It was really great to watch. I think it's been really refreshing, uh, the Women's World Cup this year in particular, um, possibly because it was a bit closer to home. I know the last one was in America and there was a bit of coverage because England were there. England done particularly well but you know, in France it's been fresh and like you say even when Scotland went out you know I still found myself watching some of the games and being impressed by a lot of the players um, and it, it feels like the women's game is really growing and it's, that can only be a positive for football as a whole yeah you know whether it be men or women's games I like to watch a game of football regardless of if it's of a good 
Yeah, I'll be honest. I, um, I didn't watch any more after Argentina game just simply because <laughs> I was so gutted. Um, and <laughs> when, um, but I, you know, I was keeping an eye on some of the scores and how um, certain teams were progressing. Um, but it was, you know, it just as you say, and it, it says everything for where that team's come. You know. The, the Scottish women's national team didn't really do much. Um, they would have probably been finishing bottom in every qualifying group, and now we're we're at a stages where we're gutted at the fact they didn't get through um, from the World Cup into the last uh, sixteen. But um, they did very well to get there, um, and hopefully Shelley and the girls will learn from their mistakes this time and put that right in the next campaign. Um, but later on in the competition, obviously everyone knows about the so-called um, infamous teacupping celebration, which tended to cause a stir, no pun intended. Um, but what the hell was that about? Why is that so offensive? I mean, see if that was um, someone doing it against Scotland um, down in a pint, we'd have probably lapped that up, to be honest. Huh? I, I, I'm actually delighted at how much offence is being taken up, because now they're just going to get it all the time. Mm-hmm. The funniest thing was when Ellen White tried it in a third-place match and I got, got a goal rolled out for offside. <laughs> I was off. Yeah. Handball, sorry, I it for. But yeah, yeah, I mean, so she's trying it in a game. She's trying to wind up a team who made it through to the final when she's not in the final. Um, your goal's been rolled out for her handball anyway. Um, you've ditched your own ridiculous goggle celebration. Nothing, nothing got my back up more in the World Cup than watching her do that celebration again and again and again. <laughs> um, yeah, um, yeah, I was. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that celebration. Anybody that's taken offence for that has needs to get away, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the the reaction to it's been bizarre to say the least. Um, I thought it was just a bit of fun from Alex Morgan, to be honest. Um, and I'm I'm happy that despite the reaction, she's continued to do it anyway. I think it speaks volumes for her character that she's not backing down and understanding that there's not actually any offence caused by that, despite the the media trying to play it that way in some in some parts. Yeah, it's not it's not exactly if you put it in perspective, I mean Robbie Fowler when he did a goal celebration was doing the sniffing the line um against yeah. Everton. You know, I think um, yeah. there was less of a um commotion about that than there was um you know, the sip and the tea, you know. Yeah. And and it's, and that was the other thing, the Paul Gascoigne dentist chair um incident. Um, well, celebration. We don't really like to talk about the the goal, to be honest. But you know, the celebration. <laughs> it was a dig at the media, and they lapped that up. So, but you know, the shoes and the other foot's happened against England. It's a different thing. But um, yeah. you know, again, it typified the the media down there. You know, they were talking about, oh, it's a shame that USA and England weren't kept apart until the final. That would have been a great final. Well, tough. Um, but England, to be fair, they've um, made advances in women's football as well. I know they've got a lot more money behind them in Scotland, but um, no, they've built yeah, yeah, up really well. I think that's that's driven by their own positive performance at the World Cup in 2015, where they finished third, and I think they then got real backing and they restructured the leagues. And obviously, like you're saying there's a lot more money down there than what we have, so I think they probably expected to do better, but. All of this, or oh, it'd been better if England and USA were kept separate. I mean, it's easy to forget that USA played the European Champions in the Netherlands in the World Cup final. You know, it's not like they played yeah. the, it, like they played any team who were not great or anything. It's a good enough standard, and I think obviously we are Scottish and we're slightly biased, and we don't particularly like the English media, but they they, they overhype themselves as as they as they normally do, and bringing in Phil Neville, I suppose they probably thought they were going to kick on, but I, I, I thought they looked disjointed a lot, England, when I watched them, and he made a lot of changes every game, and it was, I just felt as if they were disjointed, I thought, honestly, I expected better from them from what I'd heard and what I'd previously seen of some of the players, and I just felt like at times they just looked a little bit disjointed. Yeah, 
I mean, that's the thing. I mean, you've obviously got a man there in charge of the England uh, national team. And Shelley's been a manager um, for a Scottish men's team, albeit at a much lower level. Um, and there was talk that, you know, before the World Cup, is Shelley here um, good enough to manage um, in the Scottish leagues, etc. And from your point of view, being, um, you know, obviously the men's game, male, totally male-dominated environment, would you yeah. would you ever welcome if, um, if a good female coach was to come in and be oh, the full-test manager? Of course, 100%. I mean, gender makes no difference to your ability to coach or understand the game of football. So, 100%. And I played in the Lowland League when Shelley was the Stirling manager and they played some great football. And she, I mean, by all accounts, she had some good ideas and she's obviously taken that into her role as a Scottish national team manager. But it, it, it makes no difference what gender you are, how you understand and how you coach football and how you manage people and get the best out of people. Much as the same in a work environment, my line manager may be male or female. If, if they're the best person for the job, then they're the best person for the job. Uh, if you're asking me, do I think we'll ever get to that stage? I think we're still a long, 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 long way away from it. But, you know, I don't see why it should be an issue. Yeah, I mean, that... Shirley here has, I don't know how many Scotland caps. I think, it, you know, she was a Scotland international. She played for Arsenal down south and won pretty much everything in the in the game so I don't see she obviously knows how to set a team up and how to coach and manage a football team so there would be no no difference to me whether it was a male or a female giving out the instructions yeah well there's obviously that those um there's still a few um, stigmas in football that are still to be tackled that's also one of them like more more females in the, the men's game and the, you know regardless of qualifications um you know, we've obviously touched on sectarian racism over the past, um, but another big stigma in the dressing room, unfortunately, um, is the subject of mental health, um, which brings us on to yourself, Aaron. Um, yeah. I also did my, my blog um, covering the whole, um, you know, covering what I knew, but I couldn't, you know, capture 10%. So um, if you don't mind, go back to April. Um, I know it's a dark time for you, but um, yeah. this was obviously your darkest moment. Um, just... Tell me, tell the listeners sort of what went, was going through your mind. Um, I mean, it's difficult to pinpoint exactly. It's, it's hazy. Uh, the whole time around it was hazy. But essentially, I've suffered with depression for, well, diagnosed for five or so years, but probably suffered, you know, looking back at my late teens, maybe as early as that, 16, 17 I can sort of trace these feelings back around anxiety and depression and low mood for no real reason. Um, well, initially diagnosed about five or so years ago. Um, going back to April this year, I had began to feel sort of low mood and a bit of self-loathing, I feel like, sort of come over me over maybe three or four week period in the lead up to that Friday evening. Um, particularly bad in that that week and that, apologies I can't even remember the date that's how much I've tried to put it out of my mind but um, I think it was the last Friday in April but yeah particularly that week you know I just felt like life was really getting on top of me um, I, I just I was I was low mood I was getting anxious I was I had no real concentration and progressively just got sort of worse day on day in that week and it just got more and more intense and the sort of thoughts of almost worthlessness and feeling like you're not good enough no matter what you do and you know not 
this all sense of perspective sort of leaves and you can't it's like you, you can't process the thoughts or you can't I wasn't challenging the thoughts effectively enough and I didn't really speak to anyone about what was going on so I sort of made the decision on the Friday morning that that was going to be my last day here and that I was done um, so I, I went into the office sort of went about my daily duties as best I could um, but ironically I was speaking to someone working about this the other day and he actually said to me, well, you felt like you were really happy that Friday and like you were upbeat and you were laughing and joking. And I was like, that was probably because I had a relief that I had made the decision and that I knew, or in my mind at that point, I knew it was going to be all over. Uh, I know it sounds crass and harrowing, but I think that's probably what I can tie that and relate that back to, that I had come to peace with my decision at that point that when I left work on Friday, there was a, a night out happening and I was going to attend that for a few hours and then I was going to go away and basically end my life um, and that's you know, it's, it's well documented now and it's in the blog, I tried to step in front of the train and had almost a body experience, it was as if my son was, I heard his voice but it was, it was as if he was there and then I just sort of remember collapsing back a bit almost and you know, being teary and just like shaking and just this anxiety overcoming my body um, and at this point, I'd already, you know, text my wife and turned my phone off to say basically goodbye. But having had the the whole experience of my son shooting on me, or you know, whatever that was in my mind, um, so I made a conscious decision that the only way to keep myself safe now, because I still wanted to do what I wanted to do, and I still wanted to not be here. The only way to keep myself safe was to try and stay in public. And I wasn't ready to talk to anyone or to go to the... I mean, people have asked me, why didn't you just go straight to the hospital? And I was like, well, I, hadn't, I wasn't ready to do that yet. So I jumped on a bus from Edinburgh to Glasgow and done that journey twice round. Um, and then by the time I got to Glasgow again, it was maybe quarter past eight in the morning or so. And I just looked at the, the departures in the bus terminal and uh, there was a bus to Aberdeen leaving in like 15 minutes time and I just understood that that could take three and a half maybe four hours on the bus that's three and a half or four hours that I'll be safe and I can try and see what I can do in terms of the thoughts and try and deal with them so I got a bus to Aberdeen I then sat on a bridge in Aberdeen for I don't even know how long a couple hours anyway before deciding that I would get a bus back to Glasgow and then you know, I was still in that erratic mindset, still having the thoughts that I was going to end it all and that I just wanted it to be darkness again and I would go and try it again. And by the grace of God or whoever, probably mainly my wife for sending out a search party, but uh, as soon as I stepped off that bus in Glasgow about 6pm on the Saturday, I was handcuffed by a police officer um, and taken straight to the hospital. Yeah. And apologies for anyone who listens to this, and it's difficult to hear. But don't apologise, Anna. It's the first uh, thing that you don't need to do. Yeah. You know, um, I think as I've mentioned before, it takes a braver man to come out with this sort of stuff than trying to bottle it. So no, I, I say kudos. It's obviously um, 
you know, a lot to take in. But I also read, I, I didn't mention this on the blog, but I also, also read your, um, the article and even, was it East Kilbride Express, is that the paper? Uh, East Kilbride News and then East the, Daily, News, the yeah. Daily Record picked it up as well. Yeah, so that, um, that when you went to hospital, they were almost ready to say, um, oh, you're yeah, free to go, <laughs> but then yeah, the wife so, stepped so, in. Uh, so basically what happens is, or I think this must happen in most a so what they do is, the police took me up and they informed my wife I'd been found. Um, so my wife had been in Edinburgh at the time, still trying to track me in Edinburgh, working with the the Lothian police. Um, so she was called and then had to travel from Edinburgh to the Royal Infirmary in Glasgow, where I'd been taken to. So I was held by the police for maybe an hour and a half. And then when my wife got there, the police then left and left me with my wife and my brother. But what happens is when they assess you, they send people out of the room so the doctor will come in and have a one-on-one conversation. So it was a senior registrar of the A&E department. Um, so she came in and spoke to me one, one-on-one and I sort of told her what I've just said there. I told her that I still had a plan in place and that I still didn't feel safe, albeit I, I now felt like I wanted help. So I was at a hospital and I wasn't going to run away because I wanted someone to keep me safe because I have a four at the time. News three, but I have a four-year-old son, so I, I'd sort of made that decision that as much as I don't want to be here, I've got a boy who doesn't deserve this. So I was asking the doctor, "What can you do to help me? Because I don't trust myself and I don't feel safe. And if my wife falls asleep, or when my wife falls asleep tonight, I can't guarantee that I won't go through with the plan that I that is in my head at the moment." Um, and having had a conversation with the doctor, she felt that it would be best that she not keep me in hospital and that they send me home with a leaflet to call breathing space. And I don't want to tar the whole NHS with the same brush because my wife's an A&E nurse and she's, you know, I see it firsthand how difficult it is. But um, that particular doctor and I hear of more people now through the charity work I hear of it not being taken seriously enough and I understand that they obviously probably do get a lot of people who are coming in who aren't as serious as I was at the time but uh, if it wasn't for my wife when the doctors sort of explained to my wife she was going to release me my wife using her medical background and her understanding of me as a person just point blank refused to leave the A&E department until I was seen by a mental health specialist um, and the doctor, you know, almost grudgingly said, OK, I'll phone the crisis team, but I think they'll send them home. Um, so we waited another couple of hours. Uh, the crisis team came out and again, they speak to you on a one to one basis, you know, just so that there's, I think probably just so you're not sharing or oversharing if you don't want to just to protect yourself. And within probably five minutes or less, the crisis team said, no, you're going to a psychiatric unit tonight. Um, where you'll be reassessed again by a consultant, but it's likely you'll be detained for four weeks as part and placed on a crisis list for your own safety. Um, so then I was taken to Levendale Psychiatric Unit, um, seen again by a, a mental health consultant and detained on the Sunday morning, first thing. And then I spent the, the next four weeks in hospital, um, around two of that in a locked ward because... For the first three or four days, I was still so erratic and still so anxious that I sort of threatened to abscond because I was still in that frame of mind that I didn't want to be here. Um, so I was actually put onto the, the ICU unit in the 
on the the hospital grounds where I was on the locked ward and not allowed out for I think ten or eleven days. Um, just while I allowed my new medication and things to settle in and worked with the staff before I was then released onto an open ward and gradually given what they call time out, you know, on the grounds and then time out away with family and then eventually, you know, worked towards release and I was released on day 28 of my detention. So, I mean, obviously I've been reading a lot on your Twitter and how much... Um, you know, you're promoting and absolutely doing the right thing, but see when you, you think back to, you know, coming off the bus and the police catching you and all that time waiting in A&E and, um, you know, being detained, how much does that drive you on to, um, you know, make sure that you're in a better place than you were back in April? I think my initial feeling when I th- think back is just a sense of gratitude that the police got to me when they did that. My wife stood up for me when she had to. Um, that the staff at Levendale were supportive when they needed to be. Um, you know, there was times where I had I was being manned by two staff, and I, I know these people are pushed enough. You know, I've seen nurses and nursing assistants work 14-hour days, so I know I've seen how difficult it was for them firsthand. I see it with my wife, so you know, I'm just incredibly thankful and grateful for for that. Um, they obviously back on side, got in touch with me, I think, day one or day two of my hospital stay. I'd, I'd, I'd never been aware of them before. Um, I'd spoken out previously about my mental health and my struggles with it in 2018, early 2018. Um, but I'd never, and some charities got in touch with me then, but I'd never been aware of back on side. But Libby Emerson, the founder, sort of reached out to me in the early part of my hospital stay and then checked in with me on an almost daily basis. So she was a good support for me as well. Um, and, you know, being through that, what I've been through, and psychiatric hospital is not a nice place. It's not a nice place for anyone to spend time. There's a lot of really unwell people. Um, I've seen a lot of things that I hope I don't ever have to see or be subject to again, unfortunately. But I'm just firstly grateful, and secondly, like you say, I'm, I'm inspired to try and help others where I can. It's... This, and speaking out about it helps me. I mean, don't be kidded that I'm just doing this and it's it's totally selfless and things like that. You know, it helps me to speak about it. You know, as I've, as I've done the interviews over the last few weeks, it helps me sort of feel a sense of pride at where I've come from in under three months or I think maybe nine or ten weeks now from where I was on that Friday to where I am today. And I, I feel a sense of pride at that. Um, I feel a sense of pride that I'm now ambassador for a charity who I know are doing fantastic work. Mm-hmm. Um, I've re-engaged with my family, you know, I've reconnected with my wife and my son. Um, I've spending a lot more time with them. I'm sort of trying to refocus what, trying to refocus my energy into you know what matters in life. You know, it's easy to get so caught up in things that are completely irrelevant, and it's just. It's a learning experience for me, and it has been. And I still have days where I wake up and I still find it tough at times, but I'm learning to cope with that. I'm learning to challenge it. You know, I'm still working really hard at getting back into a routine and maintaining good habits. And it's all of that sort of stuff that I'm trying to promote. You know, I'll be as open as honest as I can be with my struggles, but I want to really focus on the recovery aspect of it and have people understand that, look, I was in a psychiatric unit five and a half weeks ago. I was 
I tried to kill myself nine and a half weeks ago. I'm now sitting here today having done interviews with national newspapers, ambassador of a great charity, slowly but surely, you know, spending more time with my wife and son, being creating a greater family unit. I've had a week in Cyprus, a little holiday. I'm now over an island on another little holiday, you know, just building my life back together piece by piece. Mm-hmm. I'm doing a lot of fitness work in the background. I've signed for a new football club. You know, a lot of good things are happening and it's just because I've I've concentrated and I've worked at it and I'll continue to work at it. And I just want people to understand that if I can do it, then you can do it. And th- there is support available. I've, I've been where you, where some people will be that you don't know where to turn. And if anyone out there is listening and they don't know where to turn, then... You know, you'll find me on Twitter, you'll find Back On Side on Twitter and Facebook. Please, please, please just reach out. Reach out to anyone who will listen to you and who you can trust and they will get you the help and support you need. And if it needs to be me as a person directly or our charity or a charity like Samaritans or someone like that, just just please talk if you're in the place where I was. Yeah. Yeah, I'm... I'm Sorry if I'm a bit quiet in this, but I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy to let you guys talk about it. Um, but I mean, I, I, I have my my own experiences with this stuff, not to the same extent, I have to admit. Um, but I have noticed similar. The, the biggest concern for me is people not taking it seriously. And you touched on that with us, like the A&E going to send you home um, until they spoke to the crisis unit and the crisis unit immediately identified exactly how serious it was. It's almost like one of the stumbling blocks for mental health at the moment is getting people to speak to the, the specialist that they need to speak to because I mean, credit to the work that they do in A&E and credit to the work that GPs do they're kind of like I'm going to put, go to my IT world here they're kind of like first line support the guys yeah. you phone up to start with, it's like, I've, these are the problems I have, how can you help me? It's not until you jump through a certain amount of hoops that you get to the person you really need to speak to. And as you say, the, the, the crisis unit packed up on it exactly and gave you the help you needed. Um, it's not the first time I've heard that story as well. That I have heard stories of people going to the GP and saying, I've got these problems, I really need to get like specialist psychiatric or psychological help or that, and the GPs try to throw them away with pills to sort the problem when actually what they really need is somebody to talk to that can help them manage the problems they've got um, and I, I don't know what it's like for you at the moment I mean obviously you're still uh, uh, like, you're only like 10 weeks away from um, yeah. a, a really dark point in your life but have you found that the people that have helped you have then given you the tools that let you manage your own life going on yeah so I mean I can completely resonate with what you're saying in terms of GPs and I just think there isn't enough mental health specialists and there just isn't enough services available and that's just due to you know there's not enough services available on any sort of NHS type thing unfortunately it's just where we live and the NHS is an absolutely incredible service and we're so lucky to have it but it's stretched to its absolute limits and that's that's not just mental health you know it's difficult. I've been to my GP. I think I'm now on my fourth or fifth different antidepressant medication as we try and get it right. And that's just because the doctors have tried different ones. I've been in hospital before and they've changed it. I've obviously then went to Leverdale recently and it's, they've put me on something a little bit different again. And it's a bit of trial and error to work with that. I've, I've been referred for psychology. I was in the midst of ongoing psychology when all of this happened, you know, I'd been doing psychology almost weekly for six months. It's so difficult when 
I've found personally that I gain most from speaking to people and learning from personal experience from others and I've sort of educated myself best that way by, and that's why I speak so openly because it's almost like I've networked in a way through my Twitter feed and things like that and I learn a lot more from just having a conversation with people or than I've ever learned from sitting down with a psychiatrist or a psychologist and that's and that's in no way disparaging to to you know mental health professionals and the like. You know, my psychologist got me to a certain level, but I feel like I've I've learned more personally through experience and other people's experiences and just chatting to people who have been there or have been in similar situations. You know, I'm a big believer in educating through experience, and it's sort of the message I'm trying to or we'll be trying to push with back on side. You know, we're reaching out to football clubs and, and things like that to try and get our guys out there. We have myself and a handful of others who have all got their own previous experiences with mental illness who are happy to openly talk about it and educate others for to look for trigger signs, to understand what they're feeling, to understand or for, you know, for example, my wife, to speak to people like my wife who she's never suffered but she, obviously what's happened to me was having an impact on her life so we want to reach out to people like that as well um, but we want to do that using a mixture of people like myself and obviously the professionals that we have access to as well I think, I think that's another um, key point there, I mean you mentioned your wife hasn't necessarily been through what you went through, what you went through but she has been through it in another way because um, she also had to send a search part for you, she's what you know had you done the unthinkable you know she's got to pick up the pieces and how was her life got to yeah. play so it, it i know i i get it. so it's not just um you know the individual um it then reaches out further if it um obviously oh i'll not say the words but um so it was good on you for um hearing obviously um hearing the voice in your head as if to say stop and then taking the time to think about it and um so yeah, and with the gas age, as you say, it's, it's stretched. Um, that's why there's mm. not enough. Um, I mean, my mum's a, a nurse as well, so, you know, I can kind of relate to that. They do a great job. Um, but it's because um, my friend who I talked um, a couple of openly about who unfortunately did um, go mm. that way, he'd been he'd been um, referred, but there's not enough beds, and he was yep. sent home. On, that was the Friday, and then it was a Monday, unfortunately, um, passed away. Yeah, it's absolutely heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking, and like you say, you know, I've heard, especially through the charity work over the last few weeks, you know, just so many people who I've spoken to who have said, I've been sent away, or I don't think they're taking me seriously, or previously they haven't taken me seriously in this. And it's it's just so, it's so difficult, and I can imagine it being so difficult, because, you know, if I'm being totally honest, I could... You know, I've hidden my depression for so long that I can mask it so well as well. You know, so I can act really well as if everything's absolutely fine. So on the flip side, people can act as if everything's totally falling apart when in reality they're fine. So it must be so difficult to pick up on what's genuine and what isn't as well. And that, and that's and that's where you need a real a real professional, someone who deals with it day in day out. And we just don't have enough of them available. Which is why charities like Back On Side have been set up. It's exactly why we're here, you know. 
-hmm. we're looking to provide support where the NHS can't, where people who are at their wits end and can't get the support that they need at that minute, we want to intervene and step in before it hits crisis because our belief is that when you when you get to crisis stage, then we've already failed you. You know, we've failed if someone's at crisis and they feel like taking their own life. We want to be intervening much earlier. We want to be supporting and providing a safe environment a lot, lot earlier than someone who needs to go to a hospital to say, I'm going to kill myself unless you get someone to see me. And and that and that's blunt, and I know it sounds blunt, but that's the reality of the situation. You know, yeah. suicide rates are increasing rather than decreasing, unfortunately. And we, we as a society, all have a duty of care for each other to do whatever we can to try and help that. Yeah. And, and whether that be you know being kinder to each other or ch checking in on your mates, just asking how they are, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I use social media, it's, it's been such a great platform and a great tool for me and it's helped me in such a great great way but also it can be all consuming at times and there's times I'll be in the house and my wife will be like just put your phone down and just have a break for half an hour or an hour and that's so true, you know, if, someone, if someone's being subject to bullying for example, you know, they can be subject to that 24-7 because we have 24-7 access to each other through all social media and phones and the like so it, it, the society is moving on life is changing so much um, and we need more support networks in place for people to ensure that we're also up with the times Yeah definitely and obviously back on sides um, their work's been highlighted a lot I've noticed that um, since you've obviously um, spoken more openly in the last seven days that um, there's been a few junior clubs signed up saying that they're giving um Gold donations to um, charity, like I think I'm used to Pam, you're doing something, Bell's Health Athletic um, yeah. donated something, your club are obviously doing something, and um, we, Chris and I and, and John, were talking a good bit towards the tail end of last season about doing something for um, mental health so um, we are looking um, potential to put in an Aberdeen versus Celtic, because I'm an Aberdeen fan, Chris is a Celtic fan, yeah. and John, the other John's an Aberdeen fan as well, <laughs> so we are thinking about an Aberdeen versus Celtic Legends game at some point in the season. Um, fans, yeah. and former players, and um, we'll, they, you know we will commit this in on the first episode. Whenever, whenever we hold the game, we will do it for back on side. That is a promise oh, we'll do thank you. the season. Thank you so much. Um, you know that you know every little it's a Tesco slogan, but every little helps. And people don't understand, uh, uh, won't understand how much a hundred quid can help if we raise a hundred quid. How much? of a difference we can make with that 100 quid, you know, that can get someone the crisis meeting they need at that moment, you know, with with the required specialist. Um, so uh, we obviously, back on side, a really small team at the moment. It's a really small charity. It's Libby, the founder, it works almost 24-7. And they're on board working a lot. And then there's a couple of people in the background who are doing their bit, but it's a really small team. And we're obviously starting to see some growth as we reach into the junior community. Um, and that's a big thing for us as well, because I think there's always a lot of focus on, especially within sport, you know, the elite sportsmen. So what are we doing for the elite sportsmen who play under all this pressure and et cetera, et cetera. And it's great for them. And it's great, you know, Lee Griffiths speaking out the other day or last week when he spoke out, you know, that's wonderful and I'm so proud and you know it's, that takes such courage for Lee to do that being the elite sportsman he is and 
having had the career he's had to you know to come out and admit all the struggles that he's been through and why he had to take time out is amazing but for us as a charity as well not only do we want to reach out to the people at the top end you know we want to reach out to the most vulnerable of society so within our sporting you know our sporting commitments and our sporting link ups part of the reason for bringing me over and a lot of the work I wanted to do was getting into grassroots so junior football so the the Giffnock you know sports club that we've partnered with who have children from the ages of four and five right up into amateur football teams you know 11 or 1200 members we want to really get into that and use that use the, the, the local clubs to reach out to the community so our hashtag is very often support through sport but we want to use the club names and support the people within the club but we want to use that to, to drive into the community and get the, the support to the, the, the most vulnerable in the community that need it and it's not only mental health specific either you know we work with people with disabilities and challenging life circumstances as well um, so albeit I, we do link up with a lot of sports clubs and a lot of the fundraising we do through sport it's all just about getting using that as a tool to get into the communities and really drive support networks within that community I just I just want to pick up one thing that uh, you said when you were telling your story of uh, that night you said that you didn't want to speak out or you said you never really felt like you could talk to someone until after you'd heard your son's voice. Yeah. So I think that the the question I'd have then is, what would you say to people that are in, that are feeling the same, that are kind of similar way to yourself? Then I mean, what would you say they should do? I mean, is it just a case of speaking out, or do they need to find that courage to speak out, or is yeah, it find so someone I, you can trust? Is it find anybody? Yeah. I mean, I know the Samaritans are, are, are one of the obvious people you can call up and just talk to. Um, yeah, I know so. from my own experiences that. Just talking actually can help a bit. Whether you're talking to someone that knows what they're talking about, or whether you're just talking, the the act of getting your own feelings out is is, is actually yeah. something that often helps. I think uh, I think the key is to speak early. So for me, I had missed my opportunity to speak out, unfortunately. So, like I alluded to earlier, we want to intervene before crisis. Uh, I regard crisis point being when I make the decision of that that's me finished. I'm done. You know. Or when I start to feel suicidal thoughts, that's crisis. So if I've not spoken it before then, then I'm going to have a difficult... It's going to be difficult to turn that round. Um, my encouragement to people is if you start to feel low at all, if you start to feel... Most people will know their own triggers if they've suffered before. If you start to feel like your triggers are happening or you're starting to shy away from social from social activity, if you're starting to... If your behaviour's erratic, if your mood's changing... Or fluctuating, or you know things like that. If you're just noticing, noticing things that aren't as going as they usually would, and there's no real reason for it, so obviously a lot of things, a lot of mood can be circumstantial. You know, people go through grief, etc. But it's about speaking early, as opposed to if you're in crisis stage. That was the reason my wife stood up to the doctor in the hospital because her point was well. He's sitting there and he doesn't even want to speak to me properly. He's not about to pick up the phone to a charity, albeit there is an absolutely a need for crisis lines and what the Samaritans and people and charities of the like do is a wonderful service and it saves lives every day. I have no doubt about that. My message to people who are possibly in the position or feel like they're getting to that position is to try and speak early. And the key is to 
either speak to someone close to you that you trust who will understand or speak mm -hmm. to someone who you know will be whether it's a charity or a professional or someone who you know has been there someone that you know who, that you give the information to they're not going to react negatively because unfortunately in my, in my previous experience you know, I've spoken to people who have been very close to me who just don't understand it and aren't, haven't been educated in it well enough and sort of reacted in a well, why are you depressed type of way so it's also it's also important to try and identify the right person to speak to or the or to speak to or the right support to get. But it's it's the the key thing for me is to do it as early as you can. And obviously, some people are never going to have suffered before and are going to get to a certain stage before they realise anything's wrong. We just need to hope and pray that they're saved by a crisis line or by a crisis team in hospital or by a crisis charity unit. But speaking early and that, that's just the message for me just speak early if you can yeah I would um, certainly support that message and um, no um, um, th th thanks thanks for filling this with, with all that and it's a, it's a great message to spread uh, unfortunately it's not one you want to be spreading obviously but if it gets awareness and it saves um, you know one more life ten more lives um, whatever then certainly just keep it going you know the alarming thing is a pointed out in the blog was that the suicide rates went up by yeah. quite a bit last year so um, we want to try and get that right down um, preferably to zero obviously but um, if it could come down this year then, then that would mean that the work that the charities are all doing um, is obviously a good thing yeah. um, so just move on um, to the rest of the events in Scottish football this week it always seems like <laughs> irrelevant now when we talk about this but um, <laughs> But yeah, um, but this is Scottish Football Forums podcast. We try and cover what we can. Um, so it feels like only a few weeks since the season ended, and um, it's restarting again with the main senior season. It is, and we have our four clubs in Europe. Um, start with Rangers playing uh, St Joseph's from Gibraltar. Chris, describe um, St Joseph's. <laughs> I, th I think when the draw was initially made and it was a potential that they could meet them I, I was referring to them as um, the, the, the Catholic school champions <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that's who um, Rangers I've got tomorrow um, well Tuesdays we record this and um, then in, is it Wednesday Celtic are playing no Saturday? Celtic are Tuesday night as well, are they tomorrow as well? Back off, yeah. oh. I think yeah. um, the, the, the two play Tuesday and then Kilmarnock uh, are away to Wales to play Connors Key and Aberdeen yeah. at home, I believe. They're only one of the four that's at home yeah. this week. Yeah, Kilmarnock yeah. are away to the um, the Welsh side who reached the Scottish Challenge Cup final last season. Um, I didn't realise that got you in the Europa League. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> did that? I mean, what happened to Ross? Get they won it. <laughs> they just get promoted instead. Uh, yeah, and obviously, the main interest for me, Aberdeen, but I obviously wish... Um, yeah, we've got the the 10th team in Finland just now um, but don't read too much into that because no. we've been through this story many a times we're right off the opposition so but uh, yeah I hope all four sides um, go through I think Celtic have got by far the most difficult one because they've got to go um, to Sarajevo I think the three Scottish the, the three sides in the Europa League I think should be good enough to go through I hope so um, the there is that whole, oh, they're going to Gibraltar. Um, that's where uh, Brendan Rodgers lost his first game. Um, but I, I, I don't think Rangers will be caught napping in the same way that Celtic were that day. 
so I'd imagine they should be okay against St. Joseph's. Um, how would Aberdeen will do? Obviously, Aberdeen were the ones at home, so they were hoping to get a, a decent result without conceding. Um, but there is that problem of the, the, the Finnish league being in the middle of the season because of the, the summer football. Yeah. Uh, I don't think any of the other three have that problem. No. I, I can't remember the Welsh league does. Is the Welsh league a winter league as well? No, I think they're a summer league as well. Oh, it's it was the Irish League that had the problem last yeah. season in the yes, Challenge, Challenge Cup, Challenge wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I would I would expect that all four teams should qualify through the two legs. You know the the Welsh side obviously got to our Challenge Cup final but then were beaten by Ross County, so I'd expect that Kilmarnock will see them off. Aberdeen, I would expect, would take a decent lead over to Finland. They might get a tough time over in Finland because I think it's up in the north of Finland, isn't it? Um, so they might get a tough time, but I would expect that they'll go through all the two legs. Rangers will go through comfortably, and Celtic historically, you know, see off the teams in the first, uh, the first, you know, first round and second round of qualifying. But you know, it's unbelievable to me that Scottish clubs, you know, finishing the last weekend in May and we're back already playing competitive games in the first rounds of every European qualifying tournament it's, it's just ridiculous that our coefficient has taken that such a hit in these past few years that we're at this we're at this stage um, but hopefully all four can get through um, I'd love for Celtic to make the Champions League group stages of course I suspect Rangers will have their own ambitions of being in the Europa League group stages again Aberdeen always seem to do pretty well in the qualifiers but come unstuck you know like you look at Burnley last year so see did recently as well um, and Kilmarnock Kilmarnock's an interesting one to see how they'll do under the new manager whether there'll be any hangover from Steve Clark leaving or whether they'll pick up from where they left off mm-hmm. I think their pragmatic approach may actually suit some European ties if they get difficult opposition you know that sort of being good without the ball might suit them they may actually do okay but as you say, it's very early and anything can happen. We've seen it in the past with the likes of St Johnson and stuff being stung when they, they probably should have qualified. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, Kilmarnock have obviously um, had a bit of an upheaval with regards to the managerial situation. So they brought in the Italian Angelo Alessio, um, who's been a number two at some big clubs like Juventus, being one of them. Um, and he brought he, he brought in a goalkeeper from Juventus, um today that's the first sign they've made but there's not that many I've got there's be a couple of loan players have went back like Malumba's went back to Celtic to sit, yeah. in, the, uh, to sit in the reserve bench and the Spolers went back to Aston Villa and things like that but they've kept the majority of their um, their squad for last season but um, yeah. they should be good enough with what the so that um, familiar, familiarity um, will help them um, yeah I think they've kept They've kept the same assistant manager as well, haven't they? So yeah. And then they've brought in Manuel Pascali, who obviously knows the club well. So mm-hmm. there's obviously that continuity there that should help them, and hopefully they should see they should see Connors quit off fairly fairly yeah. easily. I would think. Yeah, um, from, from Aberdeen's point of view, we've also um, had a few new um, signings. Um, surprisingly, James Wilson was um, kept. You no, know, we managed to convince him in a two-year deal. And I just hope that the form he started showing at the end of last season um, is what comes in because I mean, 
At times he was like a passenger, but at times he was also injured as well. There's definitely a player in there, and I think we start to see it towards the end of the season. Um, and he's obviously come up, <coughs> excuse me, putting football before cash because he could have went to a few yeah. clubs in England for um, a lot more than what Aberdeen are able to pay. Um, but I'm, it's, a, it's a perfect platform to relaunch his career, probably. I mean, think of you know players who have left the Scottish League recently, even who, Kenny McLean, who's, who left Aberdeen down in Norwich and done really well. John McGinn goes from hips to Aston Villa and does really well. So he's perhaps looking at it as just it's a perfect chance to go and relaunch his career. If he has a good couple of seasons, he'll be back down south playing in the higher higher end of the championship or lower end of the premiership again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, Celtic, Chris, they've been fairly busy as well. Um, two defenders have come in and a midfielder, um, in addition to, obviously, Sved's um, loan deal. Um, yeah, and unfortunately Sved is one of the two players that's left at home for this game against Sarajevo. Um other being Jack Hendry. But uh, yeah, the the it was certainly be strengthened when they need to strengthen because um there's the ongoing speculation around Kieran Tierney. Uh Wooster's left. Uh Boyata's left, so the def- the kind of defences need to strengthen a bit. Um there is still Sinovich is in there, Hendry when he's fit. Um, but we've brought in a, a couple of players back there, which is uh, is good to see. That's where we need to strengthen. Um, I'd still like to see a few more changes made, but um, obviously they won't be done in time for the Sarajevo game now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that there's going to be a, a tough. Is it, last season we got Alex at this stage, um, and that was seen as a pretty much a, a reasonably easy tie. I think the Bosnian champions are going to be a, a much tougher ask because I'm, I'm I'm not overly confident at the moment. Uh, but uh, yeah, with, uh, through the pre-season, uh, Lee Griffiths has been back scoring goals again, which has been fantastic to see, given um, the, the theme of this podcast and the, the troubles that he's had um, last yeah. season. The support he's had has been uh, absolutely terrific, actually. Um, from yeah. Celtic themselves, so obviously Brendan Rodgers was a man that intervened and um, he made a difference there. Um, the fans were, were back and Griffiths all the way, and I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to see him back in among the goals and hopefully um, scoring competitively as of... Tomorrow night, as, as it won't. Yeah, and, and Rangers have obviously, um, they've been fairly busy. Stephen Davis um, signed a permanent deal. They brought in Hasty, but they brought in Jones, which has been known for a while. Greg, Greg Stewart, I still don't get that signing. But they've signed the boy, Aribo from Charlton, who um, they're raving about just now. Um, so, yeah, they've been, and they brought in the boy from Liverpool on loan. So, I have a feeling they won't be finished there um, but I think Gerrard's getting his business done early to make sure that they hit the ground on because this is a big season for them but not just in Europe but obviously domestically Yeah it looks like he's strengthening the squad overall with the signings I mean maybe a rebo in the, the the young boy from Liverpool on loan but you know, Jordan Jones and Greg Stewart's and the like feel more like squad players than mm. some than they're going to push anyone else out of their Rangers team so it looks like He's strengthening his options as opposed to perhaps strengthening his starting eleven. But by all accounts, you know, Joe Aribo sounds like he's he's got great pedigree and should come up and do well. I've seen him in the playoff final against Sunderland and he, there were some nice flashes of play from him then. But I don't know a great deal about him. Apparently Celtic were after him as well, so he's obviously got some qualities. And they've signed the big centre-half from Oldham as well, haven't they? Who looks a big bit of a boy, but... Again, don't know much about him, but it looks like you know Gerrard's trying to get the business done early and have a stronger squad than they did last season because they probably just they fell short in games 
where they changed it up a little bit and they dropped points where they probably would have been really frustrated dropping them. And unfortunately, um, it used to be in years gone by that um, the other domestic sides would have to wait a few weeks and um, before they started, but they start around about the same time. Friday night, the Betfred Cup gets underway um, with Hearts against Dundee United, and then there's a host of games on Saturday. Um, I think some on November Sunday as well. Oh yeah, that was that, there. Yeah. I think that was covered with BT Sport as well, wasn't it? Yeah, it must be. I know they picked six games from the group stages, so that uh, could I well be one of them. I think there's two this weekend, and I think that's one of them. Mm. I mean, I, I quite like that format. I quite, I quite like it as opposed to playing friendlies. I quite like it. it's a good opportunity for smaller clubs as well to to play the big clubs in a sort of league, a little mini league section, um, and obviously bringing in the Highland and Lowland league teams as well. Like you know, East Kilbride and like getting the opportunity to go pit their wits against some bigger clubs. So I, I thought it was quite as a good idea from the SFA. Not. Not that they have many of them, but <laughs> giving them, you know, clubs the opportunity to get their season kick-started a little bit earlier and not play so many meaningless friendlies. Um, and I dare say the small clubs may maybe make a bit of revenue out of some of the games. I really want to see the SPFL do what they did accidentally last season as well and have the double header in the semi-final. <laughs> yeah, but do, but do it properly this time. <laughs> just actually yeah. use it like that properly, and not make a just stumble upon a really good idea. Yeah, because uh, it turned out, that turned out to be working really well. Um, but it, like I say, it just it took such a ridiculous round of houses way to get to it in the first place. Yeah, and you should kind of suspect they're going back to Saturday, Sunday this season, if, uh, yeah. depending on what happens with the the, the European fixtures, of course, because that was the problem in the first place. Is it both Celtic and Rangers were due to play? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Without just played the, the Thursday before it. Yeah, I think without knowing, uh, without looking at the, the the key dates, but I'm pretty sure the semi-finals a different weekend from it's the weekend in between the weekends after the respective European fixtures. So I think they've avoided that. But I think the final is like closer to mid-December this year. Uh, if they keep it going this uh, this rate, then it'll be in Christmas Day in a couple of years' time. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, the, the six fixtures are Hartslade United this Friday and St Mundum Fairmont this Sunday, um, and then the following weekend you've got Motherwell, Greenock, Martin, and then St Johnston North County, and then again later the following weekend it's Elgin City, Hibs, and Dundee versus Inverness. That's the six we've got across the, the next three weekends. So that seems pretty good. Yeah, that'll be good for Elgin, having some exposure um, <coughs> for um, having Hibs going up there, so yeah. it's good that they're covering those kinds of games as well. But um, I mean, Hearts and the United is a tasty first game of the season to have coverage as well. Hearts have been on a bit of a downward spiral. I know they had injury problems and stuff last year, but they probably didn't finish the season how they would have liked, and Dundee United have strengthened pretty well again in the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, hope. Hopefully Hearts have got all their paperwork sorted out this year, but we don't want to see them doctored. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's been brought up a few times, but um, yeah, Hearts haven't quite made the signing um, of Stephen Naismith, who was basically their team um, for most of last season, because whenever he wasn't in the team, that's when the results were really bad. Um, I know they had other injuries at various points of the season, but the results were more noticeable when Naismith was out of the team. Um, so it'll be interested to see if they get that over the line. I imagine they will. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think he's reported for pre-season with them, hasn't he? So I'd expect it. It will be done 
when it's done, but yeah, I think he's in pre-season training with them anyway, and yeah. he, he seemed fairly confident it was going to get done, so mm-hmm. I'm not sure, entirely sure what the hold-up is, but I suspect he'll be a Hearts player. Yeah, they got um, Jamie Walker back, which is interesting, because um, it didn't quite work out for him going down to Wigan. Um, so he's got a big point to prove um, and also he didn't really leave Hearts in the best of circumstances because he was rejecting contracts and trying to force a move to Rangers at the time so it, that could work out well as well for him because he's going back with a point to prove and it could work out we'll just need to wait and see um, they've also got Hal Kittle yeah it's a decent sign he was one of the standouts for last season's uh, Premiership for Livingston so um yeah, good news up. Yeah, poor Livingston have lost three or four of their better players. It'd be interesting to see how they cope with it. You know, Halkett leaving, Gallagher leaving, Sean Bunn leaving. It'll be interesting to see how they yeah. recover from that. Kelly's a massive loss to them. Um, yeah, yeah the absolutely. Kelly went with QPR, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hardy's obviously went back um, to Rangers on loan, so interesting to see what happens. But yeah, I think they could struggle this season but then we, we all said they were going down last season when they came up so <laughs> um, and that didn't quite work out so I think it's going to be a bigger task for Gary Holt this time um, to keep that club up um, uh-huh. but, and, uh, uh, the other end of the spectrum uh, I'm sure we'll be keeping an eye on the, the news comers to the SPFL Cove Rangers uh, their first game is away to Peterhead in the, the League Cup with the new manager Paul Hartley yeah that was an incredible Mm-hmm. I mean, he started doing that at the end of it, um, cause his first managerial point was Allah, wasn't it? Yeah, nice. He started yeah. that in, in the fourth year, so mm-hmm. um, he's obviously got the experience, he did really well bringing him up, uh, managed Dundee and did uh, fairly decent there for a while as well, so um, I think they've announced uh, Mitch Megginson's the, the top captain for the season as well. Yeah, um, the guy that scores like between 40 and 50 goals a season. Um, it's a, it's a <laughs> sensible example. move, that one. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, how they do. Um, and it, speaking of managerial um, changes, I mean, that one with St Martin, Um there was rumours about Kearney not being yeah. happy um, at the end of the season. And then he's gone back, looks like he's gone back to um, Coleraine. Um, but Jim Goodman was always a stick on to go back there. Um, but, well, yeah go there as a manager um, so it's a blow for Alloa because he also did a fantastic job so much so that um, he was nominated for manager of the year um, mm-hmm. having kept Alloa up so um, but yeah it'll be interesting to see if, if they can build on 11th place um, and achieve Tony Fitzpatrick's um, ambitions of top 6 top 6 <laughs> top 6 dream <laughs> So yeah. lofty ambitions indeed um, <laughs> maybe avoid the playoff is the, the, the first goal though. yeah I th- I think the second goal not getting relegated is the first goal yeah. <laughs> exactly um, is there anything else you want to cover tonight I think that's probably us for the, the moment there's, yeah. there's not actually been any real football for the last four weeks it's been, that's how long it's been since Belgium played Scotland <laughs> I was just checking exactly how long it been four weeks since the last since the, the last season effectively ended. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's we're, we're into the, the ninth season of this podcast. Um, I'm sure we'll be uh, getting the email in a couple of weeks about uh, let's get your predictions in, and we'll talk about how bad they can be in about three <laughs> months' time when they're already proven to be awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that will come um, in a couple of weeks. So yeah, we, and we'll we'll compare and contrast throughout the season. Um, they're usually a good laugh. 
Um, Especially when you get to the end of the season, you look back and go, "Oh, what was I thinking?" <laughs> <laughs> teams, teams, you think are getting relegated, get promoted instead. I think that happened a couple of times last season. Yeah, <laughs> or vice versa. Yeah, I think I had Montrose to go down one year, and I think they came up. <laughs> um, they came up for league two, so yeah, that'll be. I'm, I'm, I'm glad the podcast is back on and. Hopefully we'll have more special guests throughout the season. Aaron, um, hopefully this will not be the last time that you're on. Um, you're more than welcome to come back on. No, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed that. Good. Uh, we're glad. And keep up the good work with Back On Side and we'll be yes, um, thank speaking you. about them in good terms throughout the season. Um, um, awesome. Well. Can I can I just shamelessly plug our golf day on the 21st of August if anyone is interested in a round of golf at the Gleduck, please get in touch. It's all for a good cause, of course. <laughs> if I played in that, you'd still be playing three days. Later. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, Is that I've just the first thought. nine, Chris? I've, I've never swung a club myself. I'm just caddying for the day. <laughs> I, I have. That's a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll, 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 I'll stick to crazy golf. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I haven't even played that for a long time. I think the last time um, I played any form of golf was the Wii. And that's going back 10 years so um, <laughs> keep me away from the golf courses <laughs> yeah and obviously we've started a new winning games and saving lives campaign um, that was sort of driven by Jamie Murphy at Kernoustie uh, who pledged £10 for every time Kernoustie win a game um, and a few people have got on board with their own specific clubs I think we're up to 50 quid for every time Falthouse won a game at the minute so no no pressure on me and in fact my own wife has pledged a fiver a fiver for each goal that I score this season so it'll be nice to see some money leave her account hopefully (laughs) Um, so yeah if if anyone's interested in backing a good cause and having a bit of fun and doesn't need to be anything like a tenor but just a bit of fun if your team won a game and you want to donate some cash to a good cause then it's all available through our our socials and there's a Just Giving page set up. Fantastic. We'll certainly plug that on the um, on the podcast throughout the season. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for coming on and um, Chris, pleasure as always. We'll no doubt uh, yeah, we'll speak soon. No doubt, yeah. And again, thanks for coming on and tell us your story. Um, it's obviously hugely important to, to all of us and no, no more those than yourself. No, yeah. no, thank you for the platform to share. I mean, as I said, we're all well, we're always looking now to to spread the message and be as open as honest as we can and let people know that there is support available. And that that's the main thing for me. You know, I, I I'm doing this to try and one, help myself but to you know, to help other people and just let them know that if I can come back from this and I can certainly start to piece together my life again then you can too. Absolutely. Um, now we're more than happy to have you on. Thanks for um, being so open and honest. And um, yeah, this will certainly get a widespread for you. So no, thank you very much for, for your time. And um, thanks to everyone else who's been listening and subscribing. Um, please keep in touch whatever way, through Twitter, through Facebook. And we also have our Instagram page, which um, no doubt through the season when one has got to a game, you'll see pictures of pies. And beer. <laughs> uh, no, but pint bottle. <laughs> you can't get beer at football unless you're in hospitality. <laughs> or abroad. Yeah. <laughs> hey, cheers, guys. Okay, cheers, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Bye.